Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Listen platform, welcoming everyone from all walks of life. If you're looking for even more fantastic debates, please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe, including tonight's debate on... Should transitioning be encouraged with our debaters, April vs. Sean, here to help us find out. And if you enjoy what either of them have to say tonight, both of our guests are in the description below. And with that, we are going to hand it over to Sean for his up to 10 minute opening statement. The floor is all yours. All right. I don't think this is going to take 10 minutes. Um, so we have shared some sources back and forth. And my opening statement is going to be kind of based on just my summarizing of what I understand our disagreement to be. Uh, so I think we're going to probably be talking about the research that links transitioning to mental health. Um, in general, most of this research is going to be based on kind of self-reported emotional states. I think that speaking of that general research, that it's of such low quality that uh, it is indicative of a probably false positive effect. Um, and then I think there's disagreement about that. There's one point of disagreement. And then with respect to research specifically on suicide attempts, I think we just disagree on what the research tends to say in that regard of whether or not suicide attempts tend to increase, stay the same or decrease after uh, transitioning and, and some questions about how to interpret the pattern of who has the highest suicide attempt rate cross-sectionally. Uh, so I think that's the kind of stuff we're going to be uh, talking about. That will be my opening statement. Thank you so very much, Sean, for your opening statement. And with that, April, the floor is yours for your up to 10 minute opening statement. Sounds good. Hopefully I can give something that we can bite into and have a bit of a disagreement on. Um, I think that we should start with the question, which is, should we prescribe or encourage transitioning? And I think that the first thing to recognize with this kind of question is that there is no medical intervention that should be prescribed or encouraged universally. We recognize the benefit of heart bypass surgery, but that doesn't mean that everyone should get heart bypass surgery, or even that everyone with a narrowed coronary artery should get heart bypass surgery. I think that medical transition is like any other medical intervention. It is the responsibility of medical institutions to identify individuals who are likely to benefit from medical transition and to encourage those people to pursue it. So I think that the question that is central to our disagreement tonight is, do people benefit from medical transition? The American Medical Association states that mental health care, hormone therapy, and sex reassignment surgery are 
medically necessary forms of therapeutic treatment for people diagnosed with gender identity disorder. So why do the most prestigious medical institutions in America seem to agree that medical transition can be beneficial? I think we have to dig into the data. There's a few different meta-analyses, which are basically collections of all kinds of studies, where they look at various studies, how risk at risk they are for bias, what their sample size, what potential errors with methodology are. And they try to collect all of them together, synthesize them, and come to a general conclusion. So there's one that's very recent. It's a two, two, um, 2021 meta-analysis from the Journal of Endocrine Society, and it finds that hormone therapy was associated with increased quality of life, decreased depression, and decreased anxiety, including no evidence of increased risk for these things across all studies. There's a 2008 meta-analysis, which in one section finds that seven studies in reviews in endocrine and metabolic disorders found that there's no statistically significant difference in mental health-related quality of life for transgender people following HRT compared to the general population. The same meta-analyses found that the possibility that treatments associated with improvements in mental well-being is supported by the findings from a small number of longitudinal studies. So in this debate, we're going to hear about Sean's belief that a lot of these studies are biased. One of the ways you can counteract that bias is by following up with people. That's a long, longitudinal study where basically you continually check in with people. And those both found that HRT and SRS improve quality of life. So I think that one of Sean's big problems is that a lot of the studies that make up these meta-analyses are surveys. So basically you go out to people and you survey them, you ask them how they feel about themselves. And there's a particularly big one with almost 12,000 transgender, transgender and non-binary youth. And it finds that hormones were associated with lower odds of depression, which was statistically significant to 0.01, as well as finding a significant decrease in past suicide attempts. So I think there are some caveats to these claims. Survey data is generally a weak form of evidence and I'll, I'm willing to bite the bullet on that. However, I think that it's possible to account for this bias and for this weakness and to just make the claim that although evidence is weak, it is all pointing in one direction and we can learn something from that. So I think that's kind of like the basic position and maybe we can get into that more. Thank you so very much, April, for your opening statement. And with that, we're going to get into 45 minutes of open dialogue. The floor is both of yours. All right, so um, maybe one productive way to go about this would be uh, to go through some of the studies that we've already uh, sent each other. Um, with regards to, you were talking about some meta-analyses on quality of life and whatnot, and one of the ones you had sent was this uh, Nobili 2018 meta-analysis. We could start there if that's cool with you. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so there are a, a few things to say. So people um, listening to this, if you want to follow along or whatever, it's called Quality of Life. Uh, of treatment seeking transgender adults, a systematic review and meta analysis, uh, except in BUE 2018. 
Um, and, and the claim that it, it tries to make is that if you look at trans people in general, their quality of life is significantly lower than that of the general population. But this is untrue of trans people post-transition. And so, you know, one inference you could make from that is that whatever initially was wrong with the trans people has evidently been remedied by the transition. The first issue is a matter of a very simple statistical literacy. Um, so they report pulling across in, this, in the abstract, pulling across studies show that transgender people report poor mental health quality of life compared to the general population with an effect size of negative uh, 0.78 standard deviations. They go on, however, meta-analysis in a subgroup of studies looking at quality of life and participants who are exclusively post-hormone therapy found no difference in mental health quality of life between uh, the groups and the groups being the trans people in the general population. But in fact, I mean, the issue is basically that the point estimate here in the second case is negative 0.42 standard deviation. Now it's true that the statistical power of this meta-analysis was such that that doesn't significantly differ from zero, but the confidence interval for this negative 0.42 goes from negative 1.15 to 0.31, meaning that in fact, the mental health of the general trans people, so not screening for treatment, is also within this, uh, and the general population, both those means are within this confidence interval. This subgroup doesn't significantly differ from either, so that it just seems, well, there are two things. So there's that, which I think disqualifies the kind of inference they're making, and the fact that they said that, quote, found no difference because a difference of 0.42 standard deviations wasn't statistically significant. This is an example of a very common, uh, especially in psychology, a very common way of misinterpreting the, and equating between practical significance and statistical significance. Um, I think there, there are deeper problems with this meta-analysis that we can get into, but just the abstract alone, just on the, like just looking at the data as they present it, I don't think that their inference is actually even remotely justified. Yeah, I mean, so you're pointing out, there's this part of the study, I think that you're pointing out, where it makes the claim that there's some evidence to suggest that there's a subgroup. And when you compare it to the general population, it doesn't look like there is a difference in, in quality of life. And one of the things that they say is that this isn't statistically significant. Um, so basically they're, they're saying that like, they're not that confident about those kinds of results. And in general, you will find that like with a lot of trans studies, there's just like not a very high degree of confidence in them. So there's this another meta-analysis. It's the 2021 one. And basically you can like go down the list on every single study and every single like metric that they're analyzing. So like depression and uh, anxiety and suicidality and whatnot. And in every single one, they'll say something like, well, the quality of the evidence is weak, due to like methodological and sample size issues and so on and like risk of bias. However, what they do find is that even if the, if the evidence is weak, it's all pointing in one direction, which is a pretty good sign. And that applies whether or not it's like these big surveys that don't do follow-ups, that don't have a lot of like controls for biases, but that also applies to studies that are a lot more rigorous you know, within this field, relatively speaking. And so the fact that all of these studies are all pointing in the same direction is a good indicator that there's probably something here. And because there isn't like a lot of evidence of negative effects, so 
you know, we don't see like a lot of disasters or problems with transition. It seems like recommending transition to people is a pretty low risk way of maybe improving their mental health. So I feel like it was kind of like a sweeping statement. Um, I kind of want to stick with, with the one paper at a time, unless you want to like abandon this paper. Uh, I mean, to, to reiterate though, the, the, the central problem with, and again, I mean, there are, there are serious deep problems in this meta-analysis, but I'm just talking stuff like, in terms of the abstract, the central statistical finding is that the difference between um, post-treatment trans people and the general population in terms of quality of life is a negative gap of 0.42 standard deviations. Whereas in the case of the trans people not filtered for uh, transitioning, that's negative 0.78 standard deviations. Uh, but that negative 0.42 standard deviations has a confidence interval of negative 1.15 to 0.31, so that it statistically significantly differs from neither the general population nor the unfiltered trans population. So that that, that statistical evidence just, you know, this is, we can say, oh, the studies are biased, et cetera, and, and indeed they are, but this is, you know, setting that aside, just the basic, like hypothesis testing here does not actually support uh, the claim that the meta-analysis tries to make. How do I address this? Um, Yeah, so I mean, what you're pointing at is just that like, it is weak evidence, which I think we're agreeing with, right? That the evidence is like not very strong. But what I'm saying is that the evidence- no, no. So th that's not, so that's, that, that is not what, what is going on here, right? That because is what you're saying. You're saying that it doesn't have statistical power, right? I'm saying that the, the difference is not significant between any of the, between that middle group and either of the other two. So if we just wanted to take, if we wanted to set aside, right, the, um, the, the inferential statistics and just look at the point estimate, in that case, right, then the meta-analysis would just be wrong in the most flat sense because they say they found no difference in mental health between quality of life between the two groups, but in fact, there's a gap of 0.42 standard deviations that favors the general population, suggesting that post-trans people still have significantly negative mental health. But, but again, that's setting aside the inferential statistics, which of course we normally wouldn't do, but we bring in the inferential statistics. And the point is that th this gap, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, just does not, like the, the difference is not significant in either direction. So that it's not that it's like weak evidence in favor of them being the same. It's not evidence at all of them being the same. It is evidence of an improvement, right? Like it is a shift, right? And what you're saying is just that because the confidence interval overlaps with like the general population and with the pre-transition population to, you know, a large enough extent that this is not like a very strong indicator of improvements. That is what you're saying, right? Just to be clear that we're well, on the same page. So, so the negative point seven, eight, the first one, that's not pre-trans people. That's like trans people as a whole, which actually includes some post okay, yeah, transition yeah. Trans, trans people, people as a whole, including people who are pre-trans. Yes. So the argument the authors make has to do with the difference between the post-transition people and the general population. Now, there's a different argument you can make, which is the difference right between this general uh, trans population and the post-treatment ones. But that's going to be, I mean, that's complicated for even more reasons. One of which is that they're not the same subset of studies. There are way more studies included in the, because, because a lot of the studies just didn't have any data on post-transition people. So to, to compare those two numbers, I mean, you're literally, that's not like a stable <clears throat> cohort of people. 
perhaps we should move to another study. It seems like, I feel like you are agreeing with me on this, where like we both understand that the results are not very strong. Um, but like, you do agree that there is like a shift, right? As far as, you know, you can say that it's like not significant, right? But it does show a shift in one direction. Well, well no, because again, it's Which not it goes from point. It but, goes from negative 0.78 to negative 0.42, which is like a movement towards the general population. So the movement, I mean, in the first, like, again, I don't think you can, I mean, we can talk, there are tons of, of perspective longitudinal. So we can talk about actual studies that measure the movement, but this isn't how you do that because it's not a stable cohort of people. Um, and we can also so, so dig into but, like but specific also, studies if you want. But the specific studies find the same thing. Like the specific studies, they will tell you the same thing. They will say that this indicates some association between hormone therapy and treatments and improved quality of life. That's true of the study that you sent me pre-debate. And it's true of like, as far as I know, every other, you know, yeah, low like, bias sure study. We, we, can, we can get to other studies uh, for sure. But um. I guess the other thing I want to say, and I don't know if you want to go into this or not, because this is kind of in the weeds, but uh, in terms of this Nobili at all meta-analysis, I mean, I'm pretty sure they also just uh, like incorrectly uh, copied a bunch of data. Um, there, are, there are several studies I can point to where if you actually compare the data in the original studies to it reported in this meta-analysis, it's pretty obvious they were just being extremely sloppy, cop like just, the numbers are just wrong. Uh, that's the sense in which there's like deep problems with this specific meta-analysis. As I said, that's very in the weeds. So I don't know if you want to actually like, yeah, investigate that, that claim. Yeah, that does seem just table very it. much in the weeds. I mean, like your position is that like the reviews in endocrine and metabolic disorders as like a journal has like failed to do their peer review sufficiently and allowed this study, which just like has incorrect data through the, through the process. Oh yeah, I mean, okay, well that gets into a whole nother issue. I mean, peer review of meta-analysis normally does not check the original data in that way. Moreover, um, I mean, about half of, of psychological papers, you know, which go through peer review, have data in it that, that is wrong, not just in the sense of if you check, like, against the original source, it's wrong, it's not even mathematically consistent. Um, so the, the peer review system I think is this a is a little bit slippery, levels. though, because, uh, like, your point, like, and, you're and, correct and again, we, about these, like, problems with psychology, but most of the research regarding trans people is done in, like, medical endocrinological journals so it's not in like psychology journals where you mostly have this issue or even like sociological journals it's mostly in endocrinology journals which tend to have a higher standard so i don't i mean i don't think that's true at all there's a i mean the, the lowest replication rates that have ever been recorded in fields are all in uh, medical fields so far as i know well neuroscience is in the medical field but cancer research research on cardiovascular health those are the and that's where I'll just put it this way. Yeah, I strongly disagree with that. I think that the meta-science on the biology and, and medical science is atrociously bad. Uh, probably even worse than psychology. But in any worse way, than psychology. It, the endocrinology field's worse than psychology. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think so, although both are quite bad. But, uh, but again, like the way to actually test this right would be, like I could point you to a study and we could look at the numbers and determine whether or not, because it, it's real simple to see what they do in some cases. But again, we can also table this and just go on to another study if you want. Yeah, sure. Let's go to the 2021 meta-analysis. Okay, let me 
go to the messages. The Baker paper? Uh, let me check. Yes. Yeah, correct. So first, I mean, I don't, I'm pretty sure this is not a meta-analysis. It's just a systemic review, I think. Is there a meta-analysis here? I don't see a meta-analysis here. So I think this is just a systematic Okay, uh, systemic review. review. Um, and it, it's not really, I mean, you can't really tell from much of this. I mean, all this is going to tell you is that, well, some studies find uh, results that are significant, some results, some studies don't. And it's like, yeah, and we're trying to make sense of that uh, literature. But I, I don't, I mean, to be honest, it's, I just- It's not maybe, just maybe, that some studies find significant results. So like lots of studies do find significant results, but even like across all of the studies, they are finding like the same sorts of things, which is either like a neutral or beneficial impact of quality of life, decrease in depression, decrease in anxiety. And that's true even of like the more rigorous studies. So like one of the things you point out is that there's bias in these studies, which is true. And like this systemic review, it analyzes the bias of a lot of these and actually it like ranks them, right? But what it finds is that even like in the studies that have the lowest bias, they are also finding like this consistent effect, which is true specifically of like the, the one that I like pulled out specifically to look at as a good example of this is one of these longitudinal studies, which does a good job of trying to track things and trying to reduce bias. And it also finds like a statistically, statistically significant improvement in all of these psychological factors. So I think we, so the first thing to say, and that's another, and I'm happy to, to go talk about that paper if you want. Um, but in, in terms of this general question of bias, it's important to say like what we mean by bias. So it might be the case that like there, there are lots of different things that you might think contribute bias. The bias I'm most concerned about here is publication bias and this systemic review. And to that matter, I don't like the, the Beely meta-analysis and most of these meta-analyses that are actually meta-analyses on the quality of life stuff don't. Your problem is publication uh, bias. So not necessarily methodological bias. Oh, I mean, it, it, it's both, but I'm talking about this kind of bias is something that like this sort of bias rating system cannot address. And we know that it's um, quite a profound uh, bias so that the, the pr if you pre-register studies so as to make it so the publication bias does not affect in both psychology and in medical science, the probability of the study replicating that in the original uh, publication context was showing positive significant results is less than half, right? So that this is a very significant bias. This isn't like a small thing. Uh, and I don't think any of these studies uh, any of these meta-analyses are addressed it in a serious way. And by serious way, I mean something like an Eggers regression. Um, you, use, you use a funnel plot and a trim and fill thing, although that's less good. I mean, there are things you could, there are ways, there are techniques to actually deal with this sort of stuff. And I, but I, this literature, I just don't think is interested in doing that for reasons. Yeah, I mean, your position is, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there's like a publication bias such that the studies that get published are not like reliable in of themselves so like even if it shows that like all of these studies tend to show this effect you think that we should throw out these studies because you believe that there is some factor that prevents accurate data from being reported and in fact results in data that is 
too biased in favor of trans people or of the, of the idea that transgender healthcare is beneficial. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, to, be, to be clear, this has nothing to do with transgenderism. This is just, it is a fact of how- Well, let's focus so- on transgender stuff specifically. Yeah, I want to make it clear though, that like the fact that the publication bias is a huge bias, which makes it so that positive literatures normally don't reflect a, a real positive, um, is just a general finding in, in, in soft science. This is just, yeah, that's just how it goes. And what you look for then are studies that have uh, ways of dealing with or signs that they would uh, survive through this kind of publication bias. But the sort of systemic reviews and meta-analyses done in this literature against the norms, even in psychology, don't seriously attempt to address this at all. So we're just gonna not pay attention to any of these studies. So that would be one reason to discount the whole field. I mean, there are other obvious ones too. Like for instance, we're talking about, oh, do their depression scores uh, increase after, and I wanna be clear also, because this might seem a little misleading to some people talking right now, uh, to people listening rather, that keep in mind, we are just going through the studies. Like at this point, we're just going through one side study. So it's not like, I don't think there are also studies that show a negative effect, but presumably we'll get to those later. But I mean, one thing we know for sure uh, would improve depression scores would be a sugar pill, right? Um, so that I mean, the placebo effect is, is real and uh, robust for things like mood disorders. So that there's not even, it's not even clear that these, the observation that they're trying to make, which I don't think there's sufficiently evidence, but just the observation that the actual mood scores are significantly better in the post-treatment condition, that would be very easy to explain whether the treatments work or not because they're not dealing with that bias either. Yeah, I mean, I'll extend an olive branch, I guess, and point out that the placebo effect is real. And it's one factor that might contribute to people feeling better. But I would also point out that like the existence of the placebo effect is not an unknown and unaccounted factor in, factor in medical literature. And it's the reason why we have like the statistical significance levels that we do. And so when we find these studies that are like all consistently pointing in one direction and they consistently have like statistically significant results, I think that what's that show, what is that, what that is showing is that there is probably some real effect there that is beyond just placebo, especially when like you are doing these like cohort studies where you are following up with people continually and you would expect like more people to be dropping out or to, you know, not show benefit, continued benefit over the long term if it were just placebo. Okay, so I mean, the first thing I guess to say about this is I, I think there's a real confusion then about um, how we deal with placebo. So there are meta-analyses showing placebo do have statistically significant effects on uh, mood disorders. Statistical significance is not how we deal with placebos. The way we deal with placebos in medical science, generally speaking, you're quite right that it's generally dealt with, but it's by having active placebo control groups. Right, that is that is the design by which yes. people, it's not statistical. Yeah, I'm aware. People use like RCTs and double blinds and whatnot, right? And so the literature specifically addresses this, and it specifically says that like we 
have difficulty getting the RCTs past the medical board. So we are going to deal with placebo effects. We're going to account for the bias in other ways. And like one of these ways is to continually follow up with people and to compare cohorts between people who like are, you know, taking the, the transition uh, the treatment in people who aren't. And it's not as good as an RCT, but it is one way of accounting for that kind of bias when you're not able to do an RCT. And what we find is that like, when we implement these sorts of controls, we still find significant effects. Okay, so I, th I think, so, so I think we can, um, and then I'm going to say statistical significance isn't how we deal with placebo, but that's going to be, so we're going to go in a circle. So I'm just going to move on from that because I think people heard our two takes on that specific issue. Okay, so, but you realize so maybe it's, it would be, it's not just finding significant results. It's when you implement these controls and find significant results as well. And yeah, I, I'm not saying that this is like the perfect way to account for placebo or like even the best way necessarily. I'm just saying that it is a way. And so like these researchers, they're not like stupid. You're not like going to tell them, oh, you like there's actually this effect called placebo. They're not going to be like surprised by that. They're aware of the placebo effect. And like that factors into how you analyze the risk of bias in these studies. So like when you look at all of these studies and you say that like, yeah, this study is probably like more at risk for placebo having like a confounding factor in this result. You can actually like analyze studies based on that. And it turns out that even when you look at studies who are like better at accounting for that kind of bias, you still find the result of these significant effects. Well, what are these controls that you're talking about the control for placebo effects? What's a specific yeah. design? Yeah, hold on. So in the specific study, the one that is um, published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism from Oxford Academic, they say that considering four ethical issues, it is not possible to perform a randomized placebo-controlled study with no CHT control group, that's HRT control group. We perform a double design study with a cross-sectional comparison between gender dysphoric persons with no CHT or HRT at baseline and a prospective intervention study on the effects of CHT across time. So like in lieu of being able to do a proper RCT, you can implement other methodological controls to help reduce the bias. No, I mean, a, a prospective longitudinal design that is that is the, uh, I don't know what you call it, that is the preeminent placebo-having design. That doesn't, how does that help get rid of the placebo effect? You mean it's the preeminent placebo-having design? You mean like that's like the maximum way to maximize placebo or? Well, it's the one that you most strongly associate with placebo. It's the one um, in which the placebo effect, in, well, I, I'm thinking in terms of psychiatry. In psychiatry, it's where it initially got a lot of attention. The fact that, it, you know, because for people who don't know what a prospective longitudinal study, that just means that um, like a retrospective longitudinal study, longitudinal means over time, you do it retrospectively, meaning you ask people about their past or prospectively, you start following them at the beginning and follow, you know, and follow them throughout. Um, and the placebo effect just refers to this fact that due to expectations, if you give someone any kind of treatment, um, as you follow them, their mood is going to improve. Uh, following the treatment, even if the treatment doesn't work. And we know that because we can give them things that we know don't work and it still happens. So the fact that it's a prospective longitudinal design, I don't see how that's supposed to eliminate a placebo effect. 
So it's not just that, but like the fact that you can look at these people and you can see um, like the degree to their to which they're benefiting relative to the group that is having no no treatment. I think that that's the key here, right? Is this comparison, and you can expect to see like a certain level of benefit if you are just seeing a placebo effect, and if you're not seeing a placebo effect or you're seeing something on top of the placebo effect, you'd expect to find a larger difference than what you typically see with placebos. So either it's the case that placebos are just like especially strong in this circumstance, which you know may be true, but like we don't necessarily have evidence to believe that's true. Or there it does seem to be some underlying extra beneficial effect here. So now you're, you're talking, I think you hit on one way they could actually address uh, publication bias, or not publication bias, sorry, uh, placebo effects. Maybe you could point me in the direction. I've not seen a paper actually do this. One thing they could do is um, compare, let's see if I can get an actual number for example. What's this? A G of 1.05. Um, so like for instance, they could say, okay, here's a meta-analysis. Uh, on like the placebo effect in depression research. Um, according to the brand of meta-analysis I'm looking at right now, it's a, the effect size of G equals 1.05. And then compare and say, okay, we're just going to subtract that from all the improvements in our interventions in order to, as a way to address, it, to get over the fact that, yeah, we can't do randomized control trial. This is a way to kind of get at the placebo effect. Uh, but I've never seen a study actually do that in this literature. Uh, but maybe you have an example that we could look at that. As far as a study that is comparing two groups, no, a study that, because what it sounded, maybe I misinterpreted, but what it sounded like you were suggesting was that what they could do is, because we know on average how big the placebo effect is in depression trials. So even if we don't have a placebo in our specific study, what we can do is take that effect and subtract it from the perceived benefit of our study and then see what remains. If our, uh, if our uh, benefit is significantly greater than the average placebo effect for the outcome we're looking at. That's one thing you could do. I thought you were suggesting that. I was just saying I've not seen a study do that, even though I think that would be an interesting way uh, to address it. I mean, so like in the study that I am talking about, they are comparing people with no cross-hormonal treatment, cross-sex hormonal treatment to people who do have it. And so like they are able to estimate the effect size from that. that but that is not the same. Okay, I think I just misunderstood you and was suggesting something. I thought you were suggesting something that you weren't, because that's not uh, what I'm talking about. But, um, okay, I think people have heard about the placebo. Maybe we just go to one of these specific studies and do that. Okay, sure. Uh, Which study do you want to look at specifically? Um, two. Do you want to do the, the green one first? The green one? This is the author's name. Sorry. Uh, the, uh, the Association of Gender-Affirming Hormone Therapy with Depression. Thoughts of suicide and attempted suicide among transgender and non-binary youth. Is that the one you mean at all? Uh, I think this is the paper I accidentally. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was one of the ones you said. So. Can you send it to me real quick? Uh, yeah. Uh, and then while they're doing that, I just want to send love out there into the intertubes. If you would like to get your question or comment read out loud, please tag me in chat at Amy Newman or send in your super chats, we'll, which will get you priority read, but right back to YouTube.
Okay. I put it yes. in the uh, the Twitter uh, chat. Yeah, I see it. Okay, so this study um, for people who are uh, so this so this the first thing to say that I like about this study is that it's looking it has a measure of suicide attempt. Now the reason why I think that is important, this is the kind of literature that I favor looking at, is because there's some reason to think that, for instance, the placebo effect might not impact suicide attempt, even though it impact it almost surely impacts asking people how badly they feel, but it might not actually. And we can, we're particularly interested when we get into the research suggesting that might be the case, but I'm just going to say that for the time being, that I think suicide attempt is a better outcome for that and a, a couple other reasons. Now, so this paper is looking at uh, some minors, I believe. What is this? Oh, youth age 13 to 24, whatever. And it's a big survey. has thousands of, of trans people. And when we're comparing how people are doing in the sample, depending on whether or not uh, they were in the group that got that wanted hormone therapy and got it, or if they were the group of people that wanted hormone therapy and did not get it among trans people. Now, there are two things to say, I guess. So in the first place, um, I think it is probably true that in that comparison, the P it's going to favor the people who got what they wanted. Uh, but I think a more full consideration of the different groups of trans people and their suicide attempt rates still suggests that there's not a positive effect for these surgeries. But I would also say, I don't think this particular paper provides very good evidence at all. Um, so if you look at table five of the paper, which is the main finding, we see that in their overall sample, right, there is not a significant effect on suicide attempt. There is a significant effect, and this gets to part of what I'm speaking about in terms of the difference between these things. There is a significant effect on depression, self-rated depression, um, and suicidal ideation, but not on actually attempted suicide. That effect is not statistically significant. Now. They want to say that, okay, but if we restrict the sample to ages 13 to 17, there's a significant finding. And I mean, it's true that it's significant, but the p-value of significance is 0 0.04. Uh, I mean, this is funny for many reasons. The most obvious reason it's funny is that if they corrected for just the two tests they just did, it would now not be significant. Uh, but, but also, and more seriously, um, we know from uh, various large studies of, of what happens when you try to remove publication bias again and, and introduce pre-registered replications of studies that uh, studies that have p-values of like 0 0.05 to 0 0.01, um, almost like the probability that they would actually replicate in a publication bias-free context is well less than half. It's not even close to half. Um, to get close to half, you have to get this way lower p-values. And that's why some people think that there should be like a lower uh, significance threshold for what we call quote-unquote significant because where the line is actually right now is for arbitrary historical reasons and isn't at the point at which the probability of something being kind of the real deal becomes even half. Yeah um, I mean I think that like the evidence for improvements in suicidality is not that strong but I also think it's like telling that in table three of this same paper when you split it up into people who received gender affirm affirming hormone therapy and who didn't, you do find significant results to 0 0.001. So like, I think that you're pointing out there's like not a very significant result in suicide when you're, you know, when you're looking at the overall sample or in the ages 13 to 17, but like the actual relevant like factor to this discussion, which is like receiving or not receiving GHED, 
is it does seem like there is an effect and I, that might just be like this study because I, I have not seen that in other studies frankly so I would like be willing to bite that bullet but I do think that like it is a little bit telling that it does show that effect elsewhere yeah so table I mean there, there are two things to say so in the first place um the point zero zero one statistic refers to the chi-square statistic um comparing three different groups and, and it's i don't know why they're doing this I, I, the table three is an oddity to me but the three groups um uh oh sorry actually you know what i was reading that wrong but in any case i it's also that is that's an incorrect reading but the more important point is just that this is the difference prior to controlling for uh, the set of, so i'm talking about is also this difference it's just after controlling for some obvious things you want to control for because one thing you might want to ask is okay if we're comparing people that got the therapy to people who didn't well why didn't they get the therapy is it because for instance they were too poor to get the therapy and that's one of the things they try to control for that'd be problematic because it was because they were poor well poverty might have an independent effect has nothing to do with the uh surgery or the hormone treatment rather uh, on suicide and so the, the effect I was looking at, which is the effect that the authors uh, point to, is the adjusted odds ratio after controlling for some of these more obvious confounding factors. Yeah, and then it's just, well, the problem with like table five is that it's looking at like overall rates, which I think is, and, and then looking at like the, the child's rates for 13 to 17. And I think that like, if your point is purely that like the attempted suicide rate and the effect on that from GHGT is not that big. I think that is consistent with other literature that I've seen that has typically not been able to find a significant effect in this area. But I think that like another area where we disagree is about whether or not we should use suicide attempts as the primary metric for this. Whereas I think that like, even if we can find a significant evidence of other psychological benefits from transition-related therapies, that that is a good reason to recommend them, at least in some cases. The goal is like not necessarily always to, like the, the main metric of success is not necessarily attempted suicide. It'd be great if you could also reduce those, but it's possible that there's just like there's some cohort that is very likely to engage in attempted suicide. And for those people, whether or not they receive gender affirming hormone therapy, they're still going to be likely to do it. And then it's possible that for the rest of the people, there's going to be a beneficial psychological effect outside of suicide. And in that kind of scenario, we would expect to see these kinds of results and it would still be beneficial to prescribe HRT in some circumstances. So I, mean, I would think that any significant improvement on general mood is also going to have a real world effect on behavior like suicide attempting. Well, not necessarily. Um, especially in like a trans population where the suicidality rate is so astronomically high to begin with. Yeah, not necessarily because it's possible that like the, the groups of people that are engaging in attempted suicide behavior are the people who are like you know, not receiving the lion's share of the benefit of HRT. And you don't necessarily know like which group someone's gonna be in when you are evaluating them for prospective candidacy of receiving HRT. And if they're like, this is just like a hypothetical, we don't actually know if this is true, but if they're in the group that like is just 
you know, they're going to receive massive psychological suffering regardless of HRT. You know, they might not benefit from it, but that doesn't mean that like the rest of the people who are benefiting from it shouldn't receive HRT. So I think that like the conclusion that is like very specifically isolating one metric, which is suicide attempts, is a little bit dubious for that reason, or I should say like a lot dubious for that reason. So I, I guess I don't see how that makes sense. I mean, it's not as if like the suicidality rate, right, of trans people in general, excluding maybe some uh, people who, for whatever horrible reason, are just doomed to commit suicide no matter what happens to them in life. Like the suicidality rate is not going to be zero. And is their, is their propensity to suicide not going to be partly a function of their general uh, psychological well-being? I think it I think it probably is. But here's like I'm, I'm just describing like one scenario in which just if you don't see like one metric decreasing, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't beneficial effects elsewhere. And so like, if we can have a medicine, like imagine we have like a hypothetical medicine, which improves people's quality of life and, you know, self-perceptions that allows them, you know, to have a lot more confidence. For example, people who have body dysmorphia disorder, right? So like they physically view themselves as different from what they are, but for like the most extreme cases, it doesn't really help them. I think that in that kind of circumstance with this hypothetical medicine, it would still make sense to prescribe it, even if it doesn't help with the most extreme cases, because there's always a chance that they are not in the most extreme cases and therefore will benefit from it. Sure, so I think maybe I wanna reiterate um, that the reason that I go to suicide attempt data is to try to get around the placebo effect, because otherwise we're in this difficult position of the hypothesis that the treatment works and the hypothesis that the treatment does not work both predict an increase in self-rated mood after the treatment. And so that's a that's an epistemically uh, black pill situation to the back. I mean, you would say that like a placebo effect would probably have an effect on attempted suicide as well, right? Uh, no, so so that's why I uh, like the you metric is because I think must that believe this. <laughs> like, b- believe what? The placebo has a positive effect on this. Oh no, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, why? So, why do you think it's special? So, and I, I can link. I mean, there's specific uh, studies on this. Um, I one second, let me. But the, the reason it's special, I mean, it's not that special. It's just that it's a behavioral and objective measurement is the first thing I, I should say. My general perspective on placebo. I, I think that, that like the bias here that can, you're accounting for is not necessarily but, placebo, but like there is a bias for people to self-report like false things, right? Like a bias to justify past decisions, right? And I think that the reason to use suicide would be to account for that bias, the bias where people might report feeling better than they actually are. And so that would be like a good reason to look to more like quote unquote objective measures like attempted suicide. And I think that that is like, it's a little bit of an obfuscation because obfuscation because you can provide like actual psychological tests which are pretty like good at teasing out whether or not people truly feel negative about themselves or are just lying about it. And even if there is like an effect of people lying about things, you know, you would still expect that to be seen elsewhere in the data, which we don't necessarily see. For example, like lots of people detransitioning, which you don't really see a lot of people detransitioning. And so I think that using attempted suicide is like, ironically, it's kind of the thing that you're accusing these studies of doing, which is just like, 
pea hacking their way to finding a result that is preferable to them. But you are like explicitly looking for the one metric that like might support your position and then ignoring everything else, which I think is pretty disingenuous. So I think this is, this is very backwards. Um, so the first place, so yeah, we need to have uh, a theory and some evidence, I think here about what the placebo effect constitutes. Um, so my general view of the placebo effect is what goes on the placebo effect is that because people expect a certain outcome, they start kind of deluding themselves into thinking the outcome has occurred when it actually has not. Whether you want to call that line, I don't know. But uh, they can't do that with respect to certain objective behavioral measurements. Uh, this is true in, in other fields. Like, for instance, if you look at the placebo effect on insomnia and it had lots of placebo effects on self-rated sleep quality, none on objective measures of sleep quality. But in the case of suicide, there's a specific reason uh, to think this as well. Um, so there's this, uh, this, this meta-analysis of, uh, I didn't think we were going to, I didn't actually think this was going to be a matter of controversy, but there's a meta-analysis on suicide uh, research. And, and what, what it finds is that in general, active control groups have, it's suicide interventions, I say. So we're trying to stop suicide. What does the research on that say? Well, one thing it says is that in active control group situations, there is a lesser effect, which is what you would expect. That means that there's some kind of placebo effect, generally speaking, with respect to measurements of suicidality. Um, okay, thank you. That's but, all I wanted but, to like, no, 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 but let, no, 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 let me finish. Let me finish. The, the ending is key. Okay. Uh, but these interventions already, while they did show uh, significant effects across general measures of suicidality, which includes things like, say, suicidal ideation, the interventions already had no significant effect with respect to suicide attempt. Uh, so that whatever the placebo effect was seemingly was not happening with respect to them actually attempting suicide, which is why, and I don't, it's not even as broad as suicide. It's specifically suicide attempt is what I've, and, and it's not, it's not an after, it's not an ad hoc. Like it's because I'm looking for a way to get around the, this placebo effect. This isn't, uh, it's not P hack, like a version of P hack yet. I don't think this is just a principled choice of metric. I think, well, I think that if your goal is to reduce bias, I think this is like, a stronger way of reducing other kinds of bias than reducing like this, this specific placebo effect bias. Well, I think we've said our, uh, but I mean, like, even, okay, even if we're like, establishing the suicide this, stuff, like the study that you that linked, this... to be clear, the study that you linked does find like a 0 0.001 significance on like less attempted suicide from people who receive GHT. Or HRT, it's the same thing, but yeah. Well, again, in the in the multivariate context, the p value was not significant at all for the whole sample, and even for the minor sample, it was significant at p equals point zero four. But more importantly, I mean, I want to remind people, and I because I think this debate is starting to because we're just talking about the sources uh, that you had sent, creating somewhat of a misleading situation. Um, I think it's just true, even though that study, I don't think it's good evidence of it, but I think it is just true that the suicide attempt rate is highest among people who wanted this therapy, but could not get it. Um, what I think is important though, I will link again, there's a link that I sent earlier, but I'll relink it as an example. And there are multiple studies showing this, um, that if instead of comparing people who, be, be, because, and let me explain for a minute why I think that comparison is problematic. You're talking about people who want a treatment, but can't get it. Well, that adds 
a new feature of suffering to their life. Namely, they think that there is this treatment that they believe in enough to want. So they think that's something that's probably going to help them. For some reason, they, unlike other people, just can't get it. Now, you might say, oh, well, look, sure, that's um, this kind of suffering. That this, there's a problem with this data. All data has problems, though, uh, but we can't get out of it. But I think we can get out of it, which is by comparing the suicide attempt rate with respect to people who um, haven't had the, the transitioning yet, but it's not that they won't be able to get it. It's just that they, they want it someday or they're planning to get it, but there's nothing like per- long run preventing them from getting it. And what we see in that case is that the suicide rates are similarly elevated, both among people who want to get it, but haven't got it yet, and people who have already gotten it. Yeah, I, I've also seen this analysis that you've done here. And your, your point is that transgender people seeking surgery have higher suicidality than trans people not seeking surgery. And it's a little bit like the transgender equivalent of pointing out that patients who are seeking like heart bypass surgery have a higher rate of heart attack than patients not seeking heart bypass surgery, which is to say like, it's a completely ridiculous point. Of course, people seeking surgery are at higher risks. That's why they're seeking surgery. But I think that like, it's even more absurd that you think that it's unreasonable to compare the groups of people who are wanting, uh, but haven't gotten it and wanting and have gotten it. You do think it's reasonable to compare people who haven't had it or people who have had it and wanted it to people who just don't want it at all. And so I think that like, this is just like, it's it's so problematic that reason but it's also problematic because you've basically you've dismissed like this literature and these publications you said there's this publication bias so your solution is to do like napkin math where you basically you look at the reported you know the rates of people who are reporting attempted suicide and you just say like well even though this study is not actually coming to the conclusion that you know, that there's this effect here. I'm just going to like say there's an effect here, which I think is like, it's just like so out of the bounds of how you should be interpreting these studies. And Sean, before you answer that, I just want to say that we have about four or five minutes of open dialogue before we switch into the Q&A, but right back over to you, Sean. Well, that's no fun. Um, Okay, so... uh, I think you've misunderstood the groups I'm comparison, comparing. Um, so to, to, to take just a, a specific example, I think it's a fairly representative example. In the link I sent, which people can't see, it's uh, this survey to the, about 6,000 American trans people in it. Um, and they break down the attempted suicide rate by people who've had all these different kinds of transition-related health care. So to take the top slash chest breast surgery as an example. And so the, the suicide rates, if you, if, if you compare people who do not want it, 34% attempted rate, want it someday, 45%, have had it 44%. Now, what I'm pointing at right now is that those last two numbers, in some cases, it's a little bit higher in one, in some cases, a little bit higher in the other. Overall, though, those two are the same. So I'm not invoking actually a comparison between the people who just don't want it. Now, the difference between this, and it's important to point this out, and the paper that we were referencing before, there's a difference between the set of people who want it someday and the people who want it, but say that they are being prevented from getting it, right? That they can't get it. Uh, that research, just asking about if you want it someday, if you're planning to get it, also there's research that words it like this, that shows the same thing. Uh, where you get the highest rates are these people who are like prevented from getting 
the hell the, the, the transitioning that they want. Um, but my point is that that has that added source of suffering. And so the best comparison is between people who have had it and people who just who, who haven't had it, but aren't saying that there's something actually preventing them from getting it. The people who want it, but haven't had it. Yes, in this, I mean, again, in this way of wording that question. Yeah, I mean, like, I looked at one of these sources that you linked in your WordPress blog specifically, and I don't believe that it actually gave us, like, the variance for the data that was cited, at least not in, like, the section that I was looking at. But it showed, like, a difference of, like, 5.1% of attempted suicide in the last year versus 85 attempted suicide in the last year between people who wanted it but couldn't get it and people who um who are able to get it and i think that like you're you're right to point out that there's this like added psychological suffering but like the whole premise is just it's flawed from the beginning because you are you're doing this like extra <laughs> you're you're engaging in this kind of like analysis of the numbers which there isn't actual like literature on, like you're just like extrapolating out and doing your own math, which I think is like a pretty dishonest way of approaching the problem. Especially if you're someone who is like supposedly very interested in like the rigorousness of these various studies and with publication bias. I think that like, if anything, you would expect you as an individual to have like a great deal of bias in this area. So I think that trusting you to do like your own calculations on this is even worse than looking at a meta-analysis, which is why I prefer to actually look at those systematic reviews and meta-analyses of the available literature. And those consistently find like a very direct trend in one direction, even if the evidence is often through surveys and isn't as good as you maybe want it to be like RCTs, there is an effect there. And I think it's more reliable than trying to like divine these extra, these conclusions out of studies that don't explicitly make those conclusions. And so whenever so you two are both ready to go to the Q and A, we are, but once again, feels like you had one last thing to say. So all back to both of you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I just want to reiterate that there are two different questions, there are two different ways uh, of sort of assessing these questions that you can ask people, you can look at the set of people who want these uh, treatments, but say that they've been prevented from getting them. And those people have very high uh, suicide rates, higher than people who've had the transitions, but then there's an equaling of the suicide rates between people who have had it and people who merely say that they want it someday or are planning to get it. Uh, and that's a different question slightly. And I think that the difference there eliminates the kind of negative, negative bias of the previous question. Uh, and, and it sounded to me like you were talking about, a, again, a comparison that's slightly different than the actual comparison I'm making. Also, I think I, I, we're using the word bias in different ways. Like I'm worried about publication bias, not uh, bias that stops me from doing arithmetic. And then... April, feel free to respond, but after that, if you would like, before we move into the Q&A, uh, just tell people what you got going on in the interwebs and then your final thoughts on the subject itself. Yeah, okay. So I guess what I would say is that it's really important to rely on these medical institutions. And the reason why it's important to rely on them is because when you engage in this kind of like 
personal analysis of like taking numbers out of a study and then performing your own math on them is it's really kind of a solipsistic exercise. And you expose yourself to all kinds of your own bias that prevents you from making like a very informed decision. And like we saw this earlier in our previous debate where like just through personal error, which is like fine, like the wrong study got linked in your WordPress blog, which I think is like a good example of exactly this, where like it's easy to make mistakes when you're doing your own kind of research. And that's why it's important to rely on the system of people checking your work. And I think that to the extent that you are concerned about bias in publication, that bias and that concern should apply doubly to you. And I think that if you are just like an average person, that you should not engage in, or I think that most people who are like watching this, their best bet to determining the truth is actually to look at what is the medical consensus, why all of these groups tend to agree. And it's not because the evidence is like, you know, the strongest evidence in the world. That's not necessarily the case. And a lot of people overstate the ability of transition surgery and healthcare to like reduce suicide or to improve mental health. But like the fact of the matter is, is that we do see a consistent pattern of beneficial effects. And that occurs like, you know, however you are structuring the methodology of the study, whether it's these massive surveys of 12,000 people or whether or not it's like a more, you know, focused study where you are following up with people and you're providing them a series of rigorous psychological reviews and tests to like tease out whether or not there might be misrepresentation there. In either case, we're finding the same effect, which is an improvement in quality of life, depression, and anxiety. So I, I, Thank you so very much, April. And with that, Sean, if you would like to tell us anything you got going on on the interwebs and, of course, your final thoughts on the subject. Uh, Interwebs-wise, uh, anyone can follow me, uh, Sean, last. Uh, the uh, Sort of like a closing statement or whatever, I guess. I would just say that I think it's probably my fault, but for going into the studies that, that you had sent in such depth, I think that a kind of misleading picture was unintentionally painted because um, again, I mean, I, I think that there's a bunch of research on the suicidality that actually just does not, that has like the opposite finding and that this is actually the correct way to interpret it. But, uh, we only kind of began to talk about one of those studies, um, which again, I, I mostly blame on me. I don't think it was like an intentional thing or anything. Um, oh, and I mean, this would be like a whole different topic in terms of like trusting doctors or medical researchers and whatnot. I mean, um, my perspective on that is. There's a huge literature showing, generally speaking, academics, including in biology, the medical field are statistically illiterate people. Their uh, research articles, uh, their peer reviews joke, it doesn't find fatal flaws. There are mathematical inconsistencies in most of the papers. Uh, people reading me don't need to be concerned about the same sort of bias because, of course, I'm not publishing, like, my, my blogs are just blogs. If I, they might say, well, I want to have publication bias, but say I'll have citation bias. And maybe that's true. I'd like to think it's not, but maybe it is. But, of course, anyone can just check that by going to Google Scholar and doing their own... Uh, search for something uh so i i don't I, like you, the, the skepticism is not like it's just totally totally different context so this, the same bias could not even manifest uh so i don't really think the comparison makes sense uh and, and i mean like i said they just like they're not a high bar they're actually broadly speaking a joke the medical institutions i mean 
Woohoo! Thank you so very much, Sean, for your closing statement. I do want to remind everyone out there that both of our interlocutors' links are in the description below with that. If you're enjoying the debate, please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. And we are moving into the comments. Keep on sending them to me at Amy Newman. But the first super chat, $5. Thank you so very much, Sunflower. For what disorders besides gender dysphoria do we condone a patient shopping around for doctors till they get the prescription HRT they want? Is that directed to both of us? I believe that is directed towards you, April, but I'll read that. For what disorders besides gender dysphoria do we condone a patient shopping around for doctors till they get prescription HRT they want? I mean, you shouldn't do that. It's, it's good to get like multiple opinions from doctors, but like the entire point of having doctors like work with you to figure out what medicine might be beneficial to you is that you are not the person who is like wholly in the driver's seat. You're actually trusting people to account for maybe you being wrong and not actually being totally informed about what's best for you, which is very common because people are not doctors for the most part and therefore have very poor you know, poor understanding of the benefit or lack of benefit the medicine is give them is going to give them. So yeah, you, you should you should talk to doctors and you should work with them and you should get second opinions, but you shouldn't be shopping around for a specific outcome. Thank you so very much for the super chat and your response. Five dollar super chat from Jupiter Darman. I want to know why we'd care about what others do in their lives you want a boob job lipo whatever you do it and no one cares why should this be any different I'll let sean go first so there are two reasons why i mean in the first place um insofar as you are what i would generally call like a good person right you don't want people to do things that are going to uh increase their own like suffering so if you, if you devalue other people's suffering I mean, if you're actually neutral towards other people's suffering then i like you're a psychopath. It's part of my response to that. But then in the second place, I think it's very problematic because creating a set of societal norms that encourages transgender people to sort of lean into their identity incongruence, I think it's going to create more trans people and therefore um, make more people who are not in a good place. Let's say. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree. We're like, I don't think that you should, if it is true that HRT or surgeries cause significant suffering for trans people, then you probably should not encourage people to go down that path, right? And your goal should be to limit those negative results to the best of your ability. So I think that like, to an extent, it is very problematic that being trans and transitioning has become like a social movement more than just like a very narrow question of medical necessity, because I think it's probably going to encourage people to transition who otherwise would not benefit from the transition. Thank you so much, Jupiter and both of our interlocutors and a 776 super chat from Noah's Arkansas. No such thing as transitioning. 
it's body mutilation, which long-term can only result in the further degeneration of the individual's well-being. More of a comment, but... I was going to say, any responses? If not, we're going to keep on moving forward. Thank you so much, Noah's, for your Super Chat support. $2 uh, Super Chat coming in from Bubblegum Gum. Marek's The Perfect Girl Plays sips estrogen sending so much love bubblegum gun all of our supporters out there keep on tagging us uh at amy newman if you want to get read out but we have a ten dollar super chat from brandon hansen april should we take the easy path do what makes us happy in the short term or take the hard path of struggle and growth and taking responsibility for the way we are instead of chasing dopamine. Yeah, so I think you should take the hard path. And part of that is like, part of how that relates to transgender things is that sometimes people's motivation for pursuing gender affirming healthcare is very much like dopamine focused or like short-term focused. So sometimes you see this with a lot of uh, surgeries in specific where people, you know, they just want to feel more beautiful. And that psychological effect is something that's temporary and also centers like beauty as a source of meaning in your life, which I don't think is very sustainable. So like the reason why you're pursuing gender affirming healthcare is very relevant to the amount of benefit that it's going to give you. And if it's a sacrifice where you're basically sacrificing, you know, your long-term benefit for this short-term hedonism, that's not something you should pursue. However, for the record, I don't think that describes all gender affirming surgeries. And I think it's very possible that there is a significant cohort of people for whom gender affirming therapies are an important part of their long-term social development, part of that being like enabling them to engage with people in a very pro-social way, which they can't do as long as they're tortured by gender dysphoria, etc. Thank you so very much for that super chat and the response and another super chat from Brandon, $10. April, are you happy as you are right this moment? What else on the trans pathway do you need to feel affirmed? At what level does a trans person need to be happy with themselves? If you're asking about me personally, I would say that a lot of the things that I did to improve my mental health, as far as like surgery wise, they did improve my mental health. However, I'm not sure if they were worth it from like, a time, money, energy perspective. And so I try to caution people that if you're going to pursue certain like surgical interventions, sure, they might like improve things, but there's a, there's a cost to them, uh, not just like with money, but also like if it's a choice between going to therapy, developing like interpersonal relationships, developing some sort of like source of meaning in your life, or just like ignoring that and trying to chase these like short-term 
you know, visual improvements, I think that you're better off developing that like more long-term meaning, even if like improving your appearance, that's going to help you. Like, frankly, that is going to help, you know, your mental health, but there, if there's an opportunity cost, choose the former rather than the latter. Mm-hmm. And with that, that's our super chats. We are going to move into our normal questions. So keep on sending them in at Amy Newman. But uh, Delaney and Sean, are hormones the real topic? Doesn't this boil down to respecting pronouns? Do you want to talk about respecting pronouns real quick? I feel like that's kind of a, a separate issue um but we can talk about that i mean it is a separate issue um i think it's important because i think it gets to the kind of difference between arguing about transgenderism as like a social phenomenon versus a medical phenomenon and i'm very much more on the side of like it should be like a strictly medical phenomenon and analyzed within that light and i think that like your point would probably be that like people should not be forced to respect pronouns uh, because, you know, at worst, it's this kind of like forced lying about, about your own beliefs, but I'll, I'll let you say it in your, your own words and we'll go back and forth. Yeah. I mean, respecting people's pronouns is obviously just a way of affirming trans people's internal sense of identity. Uh, and I'm against that writ large, because like, like I said, I think that's, it produce, I'm not, I'm not convinced that even, with respect to the set of trans people already existing, that it would actually help their mental health significantly. And I think it would increase the number of people who are trans to begin with, but then they have very poor mental health. Uh, and so I think it would be a bad thing to do. So yeah, obviously I don't favor respecting pronouns. So maybe on like the more trans positive side, right? I try to tell people that like, your goal should not be to try to control people's language because when you like allow people people to just like affect your personal well-being with their language very easily. That's just like a recipe for psychological disaster. And I see it even where people like, you know, they get a lot of anxiety or fear or depression about not just what people are saying, but what they're actually thinking. So if someone is like, they'll worry, maybe this person's using the pronouns I prefer, but they don't actually believe in it. I think that when we engage in this kind of like social control, we reinforce to trans people that they should be very concerned about what people, you know, what pronouns they use. And I don't think that trans people should concern themselves with that fundamentally. So I think that trans people should try to accept that there's going to be people who just like don't support their gender identity and not to make that a metric of personal value in their lives. So in a way, I, I mean, I agree, although I think that the little utopian to hope for happening just because what trans people want, right? Like what is to assume is to, in some sense, be like the cis version of uh, their gender. And the thing about the way that trans people tend to think about gender is that it's defined not entirely, but quite a lot in, in relational ways, like the definition of what it is to quote, be a woman or be a man has in part to do with how you relate to other people and how other people relate to you. And so because of that, I think a kind of authoritarian disposition is kind of inherent uh, in, in any kind of transgender movement. Well, I mean, look at like cis people, right? Like cis women don't feel the need to assert 
like force other people to call themselves women. And I think that fundamentally, the reason for this is because cis women have an internal sense of gender identity, which is stable and doesn't like they, you know, they will present themselves how they want to be. And people will decide whether or not they're a woman or not. And they believe that they're women and they have like enough people who are reaffirming that identity that like, if someone goes up to them and is like, you're not a woman, they won't care about that. Cause they've, they already have this like meaningful self-identity, which isn't like dependent on having everyone agree with it. And so I think that like the goal for trans people should be to cultivate the same thing where like, you, you should be okay with some people not believing your gender identity and ultimately not make yourself dependent on making sure that every single person agrees with you. I think that like that is, it's a more reasonable goal because it's more sustainable. I don't think it's sustainable to try to force everyone to believe what you believe. That will just never happen. There will always be people who disagree with you. And since you can't change everyone's minds, you don't have mind control, the more sustainable long-term solution is to make peace with that fact and to develop an internal sense of self-worth that doesn't depend on forcing everyone to agree with you. Thank you for the responses. And then a $10 super chat from Arcade Outpost. I, hypocrite, did a video about some of these, how some of these statistics are generated. They poll themselves in a weird fetish forums, and academia is quick to canonize it. These sacrosanct sources sources are often rotten. That does get to. Um, I mean, we talked, especially I think about the placebo, but there there's a list of other issues typically with trans stuff. I don't think there's almost no nothing approaching. Um, well, actually, that's not true. Certain, but, but the most part, that's not a certain Scandinavian countries that have some very unique data sets. There's nothing approaching like an actual random representative sample of anything. Uh, the duration of a lot of studies is only a couple of years, which is problematic because the average time it takes for someone to detransition if they're going to is more than that. And so they're missing a lot of negative effects. There's attrition in the studies, which might disproportionately be people that aren't having a good time. Um, the samples are going to be, I mean, yeah, there's a, there are a bunch of different, the litany of problems is, is massive. Thank you so very much. And then we have a massive double uh, super chat from Noah's Arkansas. Thank you so very much, Noah, for all of the support. But I had my genitals removed, inverted, and reinserted into my perineum, gooch, uh, they have in quotes, I can no longer engage in activities because it's too painful, but I still need to stretch it regularly or else my body will close the foreign hole. I cannot even satisfy myself because all of the nerve endings have been ruined. How can I achieve my gratification slash realization now as a woman at April? I mean, it sounds like they've had sex reassignment surgery and I don't know if they're, they're still transitioning. It sounds like they still want to be perceived as a woman. 
We want to achieve gratification as a woman. I'm not totally sure what that entails, gratification. Um, I think that like sex reassignment surgery is one of these very difficult things where the technology is just like not very advanced. And so whether or not someone benefits from it is like, it's going to vary a lot from person to person. So I'm not sure if you are, if the point of your message is that like you haven't benefited from it. If you haven't benefited from it, I think that you should try to find other things in your life to like cope with the suffering of realizing that you've made a bad decision. And I guess that would be my suggestion. Thank you so very much uh, for that response and all of those super chats. We really appreciate the support. And question coming in from Delaney. Is transitioning the correct term when it's just their true self? Sean, go. Answer it. I mean... I would say, I mean, it's obviously not, the, I don't know what you mean by true self. Well, I would use that anyway. It obviously isn't. Um, and it's not, yeah, I mean, this, this is very obvious. Trans people have a very pathological sense of uh, like an identity mechanism. What we normally mean by who someone really is, it has to do with a cognitive process that begins with a simple observation of, of what they presently are. Uh, and for trans people, for reasons that are complicated, not totally understood, their sense of identity somehow disentangles from simple observations of what already is. And I would not refer to that though as like a true self or whatever. Thank you so very much. And moving right along from Take Time, can you ask both guests about their thoughts on the ability for minors to consent to such life-changing medical therapy, especially given the weak evidence for positive effects? I guess I'll start. For a second, it looked like uh, James had put down minors transitioning as like the debate question, which worried me for a second because I'm not actually prepared to defend that. I think that with minors, the encouraging them to transition is a lot sketchier. I think that for minors, you should probably encourage them to wait until they're older and more able to understand the potential benefits, downsides, and effects of transitioning. I would also say that like, there are other negative effects of transitioning, like social ostracization. It's really important to be socially well adapted when you're young. And if transition prevents that, that's going to have a really negative psychological effect. So, you know, for that reason alone, you might want to delay transition, but yeah. Yeah, I'd also add that because it is at root an identity disorder, obviously I agree that you know, kids should not transition. Um, but because it has so much to do with the sense of identity, and sense of identity tends to be especially fluid in young years, that's, that's another reason that the chance of it just kind of spontaneously remission or just going away is probably going to be a lot higher if you're looking at young people than compared to older people. And you see that with detransitioners, like age and detransition are very correlated. So like if you're younger, if you're like very young, the detransition rates uh, from like just gender nonconforming behavior. So not necessarily medical detransition, but like going from being gender nonconforming to being gender conforming are very, very high. And 
as you get older, the chance that you are just like going to be, you know, gender non-conforming. And so some part of your brain that aligns itself more towards that kind of behavior is much higher versus, versus when you're young. That's also true with like earlier in transition. So like if you are earlier in transition before you've gotten surgeries, your chance of detransitioning is higher. And then after you get surgeries, the chance of detransitioning seems to be lower. Thank you to both of our interlocutors for those questions. I think this is more of a joke. Uh, Delaney says, do city girls make do? Uh, it might have been something from what either of you brought up. But Brandon Hansen, another part, if the person who transitions determines their endpoint, then isn't affirming identity just a game of dopamine chasing? And wouldn't proper help be accepting yourself plainly? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like transition is not just dopamine chasing. I think that what you see is that there's like, there's a psychological issue in the brain, which we don't really have a good way of fixing, but by giving people hormones, you can reduce some psychological pressure, which allows them to be, you know, very pro-social in their lives in a way that is distinct from just like pure dopamine chasing, which is not going to necessarily have that beneficial effect. The goal is not just to create dopamine in the brain. Thank you. Oh, no, if you were about yeah, to... Yeah, let Sean go. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, um, you talked about just accepting things as they are and whatnot, um, that th th I think that's a probably... My guess is, I don't think there's a lot of research on this, my speculation would be that would be a useful thing to try to instill in a lot of people with uh, these sorts of issues. It's to just not be... Uh, to not respond in such an upset way to certain desires and identity formations that arise and to not be so attached to them in general. Um, but that is not an approach from what I could, I was actually looking the other day for some research to try to do the kind of therapy that I would guess would be most useful when I get done, it's not done, which I think is bizarre. The only alternative that I've been able to find really to the sort of standard program is like weird religious, uh, th therapy of some, of some sort that is, uh, not, not, a, not a very standard medical procedure. <laughs> Thank you both for your responses. A $5 super chat coming in from Counselor Guy. Thank you for the support. People do not have a sense of gender identity. That concept is strictly ideological and Western cultural based. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess what we talk about when we say gender identity is just like preference for fitting in as a certain gender role. And the exact boundaries of that definition of that concept are somewhat nebulous. So like, I think that that's why in literature, we talk more about like gender dysphoria to like try to drill down. And that's specifically like a set of psychological um, negative effects that you receive as a result of presenting a certain way or in relation to your, your sex characteristics. And so, we're just like, we observe that some portion of the population has these negative psychological effects. And the question is, what do we do about that? And that is really what the discussion is about is like, 
how effective are these treatments for these bad feelings? So why do you think it is then that trans people, the way they talk about it, right, isn't in a way of saying, hey, I really, what I mean by, by a woman or a man is a set of, of gender roles, and I really want to manifest those gender roles, uh, but, but rather they say that, you know, before they've done anything, right, so that they're perfectly manifesting, say, the gender roles of the opposite uh, gender, in fact, that I already am a man or woman, uh, in terms of this kind of weird identity language that, uh, well, seems quite unusual. I'm curious why you think it's worded that way. I think that there's like, we're sort of using like different definitions of woman or like man or gender in this circumstance. And the definition of gender that they're using is that gender is just whatever you say you are. So like, that's what they mean when they're saying that like, I'm a woman before they've like manifested gender roles, which I mean, I think is like philosophically a very weak definition for women. Like it, there's just like no uh, content to it. But like that is that is what they're expressing. Yeah. Okay. So you would say that your perspective on uh, on, on gender identity. Then I thought you were trying to. Uh, you, you just think yours is different than most trans people's. Then. Well, I guess like I'm not, not very attached to the specific language, right? So like, I think that if I'm included in like the philosophical or social category of like man or woman is not really as important as whether or not I'm able to like manifest those gender roles. So like if people call me a man and like that's how they classify me, but I'm still allowed to like wear dresses if I want or wear makeup. I think that that's like an acceptable, an acceptable reality. And so like, I just don't get hung up that much on specific definitions. So if someone were to like say for the purpose of argument, we're going to say men are people who have, you know, testes. I think that would be like a legitimate definition. And what I really care about is like what rights are attached to that or not attached to it. Thank you so very much. And another question or a question from Alpha Uno, do gym goers or sports athletes have lower rates of transition? No, do they? Yeah, I've, I've no idea. The question is, do athletes have lower rates of transition? Yes, indeed. And I would guess so, but that's just a guess. Thank you for the question, though, but we're going to keep on moving forward from Puamo3116. I've got a question for Sean. What specifically could April show you that you would accept as something that would move your position? Would you shift it if she could provide it by the end of the question and answers? Uh, yeah, so... There are, there are two things I suppose I could shift my position in a, in a fairly clear way. Um, so one would be if uh, if like you know there was a new set of or new to me set of research findings that just contradicted my understanding of the pattern of attempted suicide rates by group. Uh, if that was true, then I would just alter my position. And then also, and, and that's possible. The second thing I think is is so beyond the, the evidential standards of transgender research, I can't imagine this happening. But if it were true that someone did 
a, a long-term perspective longitudinal study using normal meals, mood scales, but establish measurement and variance across the context and pre-register the study, then that would be quite compelling too, but I can't imagine that happening. <laughs> I mean, or like a, a proper RCT, right? That is able to account for the placebo effect. Yeah, although that would be quite, um, yeah, and, and I would like to see them even just try, like, because of placebo effect, especially for um, sex reassignment surgery, real pl active placebo control group would be hard to do. Uh, with hormone therapy, it might be somewhat easier, uh, but they're not even doing sugar pills, let alone, like, there's some, there's some medical research where they do, like, sham surgeries on people and stuff and go real extreme to try to get the, uh, the actual placebo going, but again, I can't see that ever happening. In yeah, I think you would have to do it with HRT. Um, as far as I'm aware, these studies don't exist. And it's like why most of this discussion has been Sean pointing out that the evidence is weak and then me agreeing and saying that the evidence is weak, but it's still showing something. And I think that that is like, so I get criticized a lot by trans people because I say things like, well, the evidence for the benefit of HRT is weak. And what I'm meaning is that there are like methodological and like sample size issues and confounding variables and et cetera, and et cetera, in all of these studies. But what like I, where I'm able to give an olive branch to trans people more broadly is that like, well, okay, yes, there are these issues, but like, it does seem like there is a pattern here. And just the best of our knowledge, it seems like trans healthcare has an improvement even if like our knowledge is not that great. And then I think that what Sean is saying is that like, well, our evidence is really not that great. But then when we look at like a specific metric, which I believe to be like more indicative, specifically suicide, we find even weaker evidence. And then he's gonna point out, well, in literature, we tend to find false positives and there's a lot of precedence for that. So what's the chance that we're just finding a false positive when no benefit exists? And he's saying that that's very likely. Is that right? Is that pretty much your argument or am I like wrong? Um, yeah, the, the only thing that I would add is that I, there's, I, I think there's a similar plausibility with respect to the suicide attempt numbers that there's a null effect and that there's an okay. actual negative well, effect. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, that was a good sign, right? 1776 Super Chat coming in from Noah's Ark, Kansas. Thank you for the continued support. My husband was born a woman and I can't even get him to stay in the kitchen. Our gender roles, just a check that can't be cashed, I am at loss. What does that mean? <laughs> a check that can't be cashed. Uh, well, if your husband's a woman, then presumably uh, they are quite rebelling against the gender roles associated with their sex. So, you know, what can you do? You marry the what you married. Thank you so very much again, Noah's Ark, for the super chat. And $5 super chat coming in from Counselor Guy. Claiming that someone has a gender identity is assuming that they ascribe to a Western postmodernist, social constructionist, interpretationist of gender. Mm, I mean, I'm going to push back a little against this, and I think this is coming from people that are uh, broadly on my side, but I mean, there's a sense in which that's true, I think, which is that 
like people becoming preoccupied with gender identity happened in a specific philosophic and historic context in the West um, that is kind of connected with that. Certainly it, it rose a lot in connection with kind of deconstructionist and postmodern movements. Um, but it is worth saying also that like transsexuals in the West uh, existed prior to that. Um, I think there's some base rate of it just as a mental illness, it's always going to be present. Um, and then even if people don't emphasize it a lot, I mean, there's like, there's this thing called personal identity and we have it with respect to a large set of properties. And it's, it's not implausible that one of those properties is gender. I do think it's kind of weird the degree to which trans people sometimes obsess over that one, but whatever. Thank you for those responses. And then another $10 super chat from Brandon Hansen. April, do you worry about this trend of transness and the rise of far-right groups mimicking the 1930s with the Frankfurt School and the rise of National Socialism? Um, I mean, not really, because I think that it will it'll probably stop before it gets too crazy. At least I hope it does. I think that there's like a certain issue, which is that being trans has become very much like a social battleground and definitely not to the benefit of trans people, which is I think why you get some certain claims about trans people, which are just like not helpful and not beneficial and not accurate to like the research. So like you have certain rallying cries, like, you know, we need to get these trans kids hormones, otherwise the wall commit suicide, which I think is just like, it's a political bludgeon which the left has picked up, but ultimately it's gonna hurt trans people because it doesn't seem like we have a lot of evidence for that necessarily. And so I think that using this is just like not politically advantageous in the long run. And eventually it's gonna be revealed and it's gonna hurt trans people. And I think that it will not be good for us, but I don't think that it'll result in like a, a reordering of society. I just don't think it's that big of, a, of an issue. Thank you so very much. And on that, we only have a few more questions left and a few more minutes of the Q&A. So if you want your burning desire question, send it in now and Super Chats will get you to the front of the line. Uh, but does April have any thoughts about the WPATH so shape embracing informed consent for trans adults completely de-emphasizing gender dysphoria and stressing trans identity as the bar instead. I think it's a position that really comes from this like freedom of choice argument where people will say that like, well, it's your body and so you ought to be able to do with it what you will as long as you are well informed about the effects rather than the argument that, well, doctors should prescribe something based on what they think would be like maximally beneficial to you. So I think it's kind of like a philosophical difference in values here. I think that sometimes people will point to WPATH guidelines as like uh, an unquestionable authority in the field, which I think is like a little bit wrong. I think that they are they are specifically like an organization with a certain opinion on how transgender healthcare should be done, but they're not like the end all be all. So I think that like 
they're a good representation of that specific position, but not necessarily a good representation of trans healthcare writ large. Thank you for that response. And then a question from Take Time. Can you ask April to share their view about what exactly a gender identity is? Okay, so I think that gender identity, um, and the way that people use it typically just means that you want to like take on certain aspects that are associated with a particular sex. So I think that, and people wouldn't necessarily phrase it in that way, but I think that practically that's what people are talking about. So when someone tells you that like, they're a woman, what they mean is that they want to take on aspects that are that women typically take on. So like that could be dresses, but it could also be like emulating a certain kind of like butch woman aesthetic, right? Those would both be examples of like taking on, um, you know, women's aspects. And like, the reason why I say that is because like a butch woman's aesthetic is distinctly different from a man's aesthetic. And so I think that when someone says that they're like a woman, what they, yeah, they're, they're basically saying that they want to take on like a certain social role and appearance of someone who is typically a certain sex. Now, do you think that that's what gender identity means to trans people or to people? Like, do you think that cis people, when they say that what the gender is, mean that? Uh, not necessarily. So yeah, I answered it in the term of like, I think this is what progressives think. I think that like, if you were to ask conservatives or like older people, I think that they would just tell you that like gender identity is, you know, an understanding of your biological reality. I think also if you were to go back in like history, that's how most people would understand it. If you were to just like ask them without explaining the concept but I think that like it varies from culture in the same way that like all words right like the specific sounds that we assign to concepts will vary between cultures and I think that in the progressive culture the sounds gender identity refer to this like desire to present a certain way whereas I think that within history and within like more traditional culture they refer maybe more to like a biological reality. Well then do you think because I'm not even sure that that's true because and I, like, imagine that, that I was talking to a bunch of progressive people, and I said that, um, you know, I present uh, as a male in, in these various ways, but I don't care about it at all. Suppose I just told them I was completely indifferent. I had no sense of wanting one way or the other. Uh, it just seems to be what's easiest. Would they say then that because I lack a desire to fulfill a given gender role that I'm not a man? I, I mean, I guess maybe they would say that, but I'd I think be they probably they would. I mean, like, I think they'd be like, well, maybe you're non-binary, right? I think that like usually you won't hear them like telling you what you are, right? Because I think that there is a lot of social stigma against that. And also just because like there's this understanding that you can't actually know what's going on in someone's brain. So it's possible that like the way that you represent yourself, you know, you might come to some self-introspection where you change that opinion in the future. So I think that's like the reason, one of the reasons why they wouldn't like tell you. But I think that like a lot of them would think, oh, maybe you're non-binary. I think that that's, yeah, I think that is accurate. Okay, so, so you agree that it's like, that's not how they would talk to me, which is what I would have to, to judge it on, but that is what they would be thinking. Yeah, and so like, the reason why I kind of distinguish this is because I think that that's how people treat gender identity in practice. But I think that there are certain like, 
you know, kind of like scripted descriptions where people will give to describe what gender identity is in the same way that like, if you were to ask like the average person, like what is a woman, right? Not like a progressive ask like, you know, most people who are non-progressive, what is a woman? They will give you all sorts of different answers, but like what they are essentially all getting at is that like a woman is someone with, you know, the ability to carry children, to get pregnant, was like ovum, et cetera. And so I think that that's what they, they might not say it in those words, but they would be getting at that. And so I think with progressive people, they might not say it in the words that I expressed to you, but like all of their actions would show that that's basically how they're using the term. Question from, and it looks like actually we have one super chat and then the last three questions. So, a super chat from Noah's Arkansas. In what scenario does a kid begin hormone slash surgery treatment without an adult grooming them into that? External adult influence, not internal feeling, no kid thinks to do complex surgery. They have his quotes. I do think that's kind of wrong. Like, at least in my case, when I was like 14 years old, I like read papers on gender transition. And that's like what convinced me that like I wanted to transition. And maybe like I'm a unique case in this, but like it is certainly possible that people come to the conclusion on their own without any adult ever telling them about it. I would assume they're talking about like like kid kids. That, that's at least how I. As far as like pre, question. I don't know, in, like, like twelve years old. old. Okay, yeah, I mean, like they're probably not going to understand what gender transition is, and that's why, like, obviously, you shouldn't encourage them to get surgeries because they're not really like they just don't have like the ability to give reasonable input on that. Thank you. A question from Turbo. Uh, April said, cis women wouldn't get offended if someone said she wasn't a woman. Does she think the red pills community's purpose is not to externalize the feeling of what it is to be a man? I don't know about the red pill community specifically, but I think that like the important relevant metric is that like women have a or cis women have a much greater sense of internal gender identity than trans people do. Trans people are much more reliant on being socially affirmed. I think that trans people should be more like cis people in this respect. An interesting, I, I think a kind of funny way to think about uh, the being so, I mean, how to put this. Um, one thing that signifies, I think, a degree of difference between the way in which trans people identify with their uh, I don't know what you call it, identified body in the way that cis people normally do is that like, I think it's an over half of cases normally that when people like lose a significant part of their body, right. that they're attached to in the normal way, they feel, they, they don't feel like dysphoria about it per se. They feel like phantom version of, it, uh, because their brain has been hardwired to identify with. And obviously dysphoria, I think is a, is a separate thing. I think that points to a, uh, a difference in then what we're calling identity across situations. Thank you. And then the last two questions. Uh, sh uh, oh, spicy coming up. Son, what is your educational background to talk about trans issues and why do you care so much about 
what someone else is doing with their own body, what type of evidence do you want? I think I've answered the question about the evidence I'd want. Um, the educational background that's relevant is basically just that um, I claim anyway to have an understanding of how to interpret uh, statistics, broadly speaking. And if you also think that you have the ability to do that, then you can check what I say and evaluate it for yourself. Um, if, if you don't, my honest opinion is don't try to form your political opinions based on social science if you don't even think you're able to read social science uh, or on something else. And then why do I care so much about this? I mean, it's a combination of two reasons. It, it's very, um, I think it is doing d damage to society and it is, is a rising trend. So there's that. But then honestly, the main reason is that um, I've been making content online for a long, long time and it's almost all not about <laughs> trans stuff, but people keep asking, they asking me to write stuff about trans stuff that I keep, even though it's like 1% of the stuff I've written about, I keep getting asked to do these random debates about trans stuff. Uh, and that's honestly the main reason why I've read <laughs> the degree that I have about this uh, stuff is just because for whatever reason, it's what people want to argue with me about. And we want to thank everyone for arguing about it because we love everyone out there in the modern day debate community because this is our last question. I really do want to thank both of our interlocutors for sharing their time with us tonight. But Alpha Uno asks... Would reinforcing rigid boy and girl gender roles in media decrease gender dysphoria? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that probably not for trans people. I mean, I would say that um, my guess would be it, it might have ended a more global transformation towards the way we regarded gender in the past would probably decrease gender dysphoria to some degree. It seems like as we've changed our culture, the rate at which people are suffering with this condition has also increased. Um, obviously, we, this would be a whole thing to get into at the end of the day, but some people think that, well, that's just because people weren't being honest before and never admitting it. And I think there's reasons to, that's not, probably not the case, but that, that'd be a whole other issue. Thank you, all of you out there in the interwebs, for sending us your questions and for your support. But I want to doubly thank our interlocutors and thank you all for joining us on Modern Day Debate. We are a neutral platform welcoming everybody from all walks of life. If you enjoy this debate, please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. It really helps us reach a wider audience and make even more juicy content like tonight's debate on should transitioning be encouraged with our debaters April and Sean here to help us find that answer tonight. Plus, if you like what any of our guests have said tonight, both of the uh, links are in the description below. Plus, if you're looking for even more fun, the after show at the MDD Discord will be off the hook with that. I am Amy Newman with Modern Day Debate, and we hope you continue having great conversations, discussions, and debates. Good Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.